Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save forty percent on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power twenty twenty three award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to the Circe Podcast Network. I'm Joshua Gibbs, and this is Proverbial, the podcast where we explore the wisdom of the ages as it comes to us in Proverbs, by which I mean wise sayings a man may live by if he's not so arrogant as to think himself special. Episode 35, A Full Life. Today's proverb comes from Solomon. I'll read it twice. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to tear down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Once more. There is an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. A time to give birth and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to tear down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. 
a time to throw stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to shun embracing, a time to search and a time to give up as lost, a time to keep and a time to throw away, a time to tear apart and a time to sew together, a time to be silent and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. This is a proverb, a long one. It's a proverb that many people know of, but do not know. We know the expression, a time to kill, probably because it's a John Grisham novel and a John Grisham novel that was turned into a movie. And we might know a few of the other times that are listed in Solomon's catalog of times. We know there's a long list somewhere. Most people do. They're familiar with the song by the birds, I think. And if we thought about it for a moment, even if we're not familiar with this passage, we might assume that there's some prefatory comment that leads into this long list of times. But most people are probably not sure what that prefatory comment is. Solomon's Catalog of Times is described as a summary of, quote, every event under heaven. And as is common in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is where the proverb comes from, when Solomon speaks of that which goes on under heaven, he means the earth, he means the kind of closed system that all things on earth must abide by. And given how much Solomon informs my thought and how much of this show is really based on Ecclesiastes and my love of Ecclesiastes, I think I've, I've mentioned before that Solomon's depiction of life under the sun, or excuse me, under heaven or under the sun, is often a description of the closed system of the world, by which I mean um, if one person has two cloaks and he gives another person one of his cloaks, then he has one fewer cloak, or one fewer cloaks. If one person's going to have more, it means that another person has less. And it's a closed system. It's not how things work beyond this world. It's not how things work in the next life. But it's really the only way that things can work in this life. And so I say that the earth is a closed system, not as a complaint against it, but it's just an acknowledgement that for one person to have more, someone else is going to have less. There are a total of 28 times mentioned in Solomon's little song. 28 is an interesting number for anyone out there who is familiar with Bullinger's numbers in scripture. Maybe you haven't read Bullinger's numbers in scripture, but if you have a, maybe a Geneva study Bible, there should be a little index in the back 
which lists all of Bullinger's significant numbers in scripture. I like Bullinger. Bullinger was one of the first one of the first symbolic interpreters of scripture I ever encountered. You know, back when I was 17 or 18, flipping through the back of my um, Geneva Study Bible and encountering this long list of numbers and what their figurative meaning was. Um, I like Bullinger. I think he's wrong on a few things, though. So Solomon lists 28 times. Now, I did learn this from Bullinger. 28 can be looked at, of course, a few different ways if we're interpreting it in a way that the Jews would have looked at it. It's seven times four. And uh, Bullinger states that seven is the number of completion, or it's the number of finitude, I guess we could say. Either way, it's the number of finality or the number of completion. But we have seven sets of four, and I think that, uh, I don't know that Bullinger names four. I think that Bullinger names four as the number of uh, natural ordinances. I could be wrong there. I think four is best understood as the number of the earth. And I've written quite a bit for Cersei about this before. So many things pertaining to the earth come in sets of four. Four cardinal directions, um, four seasons, the four contraries within medieval thought, the four elements, um, scriptures, or scripture commonly speaks of the earth as having corners, like a square, four corners. The medievals believed that the square was the shape of mankind, uh, that the square was the shape that most closely approximated mankind, uh, because it's as high from top to bottom as it is from side to side, like a man who spreads out his arms from one fingertip to another is the same distances from head to toe. So uh, granted, this is a somewhat theological um, preface to my thoughts on this proverb. And I've, I've tried in the past, and I, I'd like to do that again, to stay away from theological readings of proverbs. I think that they're best read with common sense. Now, of course, this comes from scripture. It's Solomon, maybe at, at it's Solomon in a slightly more theological mood, I think, in this chapter three of Ecclesiastes. So what he's provided here is this description of the earth. This is life. This is life on earth. Seven days, seven sets of four. Is this attempt to symbolically or figuratively represent all the things that a man has to do in the course of his life. And he opens all of this with, there is an appointed time for everything. And there is a time for every event under heaven. Now, it's fascinating that he, that he prefaces his description of life on earth with this. It's all about times. I think the authors of, of scripture talking about times, I want to go back to Genesis 1, which is 
the first description of, of times, back in Genesis 1, and God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years. That's fascinating. For whatever reason, I find myself coming back to this verse right here often in my teaching year, especially when I'm teaching medieval literature. So there's this connection between heaven and earth. It's proposed by Moses right at the beginning of the scripture, that there are lights in the vault of the sky, separate day from night, and they serve as signs to mark sacred times or symbols of sacred times. And there we have this, this fascinating connection between heaven and earth, that the stars determine the times. I think other translations, this is NIV, say seasons, to mark seasons and days and years. So we consider the heavens, and the heavens have some role in appropriating what we ought to be doing. Now, from a purely agrarian standpoint, I, I suppose it makes a very certain kind of sense that, um, you know, the harvesting season and the sowing season and so forth um, are all betokened by um, the appearance of certain, or the appearance and position of certain zodiological signs in the heavens. But, um, but there's this connection of earth to heaven by way of the concept of times, that times on earth are determined and governed by the stars. The stars let us know what the times are. And so going back to Ecclesiastes here, there's an appointed time for everything, and there's a time for every event under heaven. But he begins this by saying that it's appointed. So the times under heaven are appointed by what goes on above heaven, or in God's heaven, or over the sun. We live under the sun. God lives over the sun. And that which goes on down here is revealed to us in the heavens uh, but determined by one who is over the heavens so still kind of in the realm of prefatory comments here um, the long list the 28 times that follow are a description of all those things that a man has to do while he's alive. There is apparently within the divine mind a sort of definitive full life, that a full life is comprised of all of these times. Or if you want to live a full life, you must submit yourself to all of these times that are appointed in heaven. So I, I might even want to look at this as a, as a list of things to do. Now, that's, you can't exactly look at this passage that way, because when we think of a list, we often think of a, you know, when I have a list of things to do, you know, you can kind of do them in whatever order you want to do, mm, you know, within reason. If you've got to clean the house, you've got to go to the grocery store, it doesn't really matter which one you do first. And so I, Solomon's catalog of times is not exactly just a list of things to do. It's a list of things that God wants you to go through before you leave the earth. 
Like before you escape life under heaven and go to live over heaven, there are some things that everybody needs to do. You don't get to determine your whole life. It's appointed, well, it's appointed unto every man to die once and then the judgment. I forget where that comes from. Probably Paul. But uh, apparently there are other things that are appointed as well. It's appointed under every man to die once, but that's not the only thing that's appointed. Now, you know, granted, uh, you know, if, if you view uh, God as exhaustively sovereign, then you view everything that happens in life as appointed. And what I'm saying is not meant to defy that. Rather, what Solomon proposes is this list of things that everybody has to do. So you might have some specific appointment of God. God might have some special thing, some unusual thing lined up for you to do. But no matter who you are, butcher, baker, candlestick maker, U.S. senator, uh, you know, models, and everything in between, God has set up these things for you to do. Time to give birth and a time to die. Now, of course, there's a literal way of reading all of these things. And when the literal way breaks down, we have to look at a figurative way. Right? So a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted could mean a lot of different things. Now, for the, you know, for the farmer, it can be taken at face value. But for the senator, the butcher, the baker, uh, the planting and the uprooting have to be understood as, as having a sort of figurative value. That there's a time to do things and then a time to undo them later. Maybe one of the points of, like the kind of back and forth here, a time to give birth and a time to die, time to kill and a time to heal. One of the things that we pick up, and if you want to go back and you know, pull out your Bible, read Ecclesiastes 3, one of the things that we pick up you know, in, in considering all of these is that everything eventually gets undone. <laughs> there's, there's no permanence. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to tear down and a time to build up. Virtually everything that's done in life is going to be undone later. And there's a really good chance that you're going to be the one who's undoing it. There are a great many projects that you undertake that given long enough, you're attempting to undo. Anybody out there who's ever tried to lose weight is trying to undo something that they enjoy doing. Anybody trying to quit smoking is trying to undo something they spent years doing. And in some sense, you know, by the time you hit the age of 15, the pursuit of virtue simply means undoing what you've done. Uh, as, a, as a teacher of virtue, my work is remedial. A couple years ago, I had 
One of the youngest classes I've ever taught was seventh grade Bible class. At the beginning of the year, I mean, at the beginning of the seventh grade year, you're basically still a sixth grader. I mean, at the beginning of seventh grade year, there's a lot of 12-year-olds in the class. There were probably some in that class who didn't know what sex was. And I found that having acclimatized myself to teaching virtue to teenagers, I had a very difficult time talking to these seventh grade boys because there was no remedial work to do. I mean, they had just barely come to the age of accountability. I believe in that, by the way. They had just taken possession of their spirits. They'd just been given over the keys to their own souls. And so there wasn't a whole lot of remedial work to do. One of the things you learn from Ecclesiastes 3, today's proverb, is that much of life is undoing what you've already done. And that's kind of bleak sounding. And that's not the only way of reading these proverbs. I want to treat this whole thing as one proverb, although I suppose you could read it as a sequence of proverbs. I was minded to do this proverb for the show uh, on a train trip I took recently. I took a train trip down to Miami to give some lectures at a school down there. I took the train on the train alone. And on the, you know, on the train, I did what everybody does. So I downloaded some movies to watch on my phone. And uh, while I was on the train, I was remembering at a certain point. It was a long train ride. It was like 24 hours to get from Richmond to Miami on a train. And I got some work done. But maybe, you know, I, I did a little work as soon as I got on that train. And I worked for like three or four hours. And then I was like, I'm going to reward myself with a movie. And I watched a movie. And I watched another one. <laughs> and then I watched another one. And I think that, you know, at a certain point in the trip on the way down, I had been looking at my phone for eight hours straight. And I was remembering a series of train trips that I took back and forth between Spokane, Washington, and Chicago, Illinois. I lived in Chicago for a brief period of time, uh, about 15, 16 years ago. And I moved to Chicago, Illinois to be with a friend, live with a friend in Blue Island, Chicago, a little neighborhood in Chicago. And I would travel back and forth between my parents' home in Coeur d'Alene. Spokane, Washington was the, was the train stop. And it was long. I mean, it was, I think it was probably 40 hours on the train. But, I mean, that was a time in my life when I had no laptop and no movies to watch. And so I spent 
you know, that whole 40 hours listening to music and just staring out the window. Watching Montana go by. Watching North Dakota go by. I mean, when you have 40 hours to think, it's amazing how diverse and varied your thoughts are. I have 40 hours to think. Does anyone have 40 hours to think anymore? <laughs> At that time in my life, I was not a big reader. I may have read a little bit, not a lot. It was a long time to think. And when you've got that much time to think, your thoughts vary. My thoughts were sometimes morose. I was, at that time, in a somewhat tenuous relationship with a woman who would go on to become my wife. But it was kind of shaky at that point. And when you're in, a, when you're in your mid-twenties and you're in a shaky relationship with someone and you've got 40 hours to think, your thoughts are all over the place. I was morose at times. I was hopeful at times. I was trying to distract myself from my fears part of the time. I was thinking of short stories I wanted to write. That was a time in my life when I wrote a lot of short fiction. Jot down a few ideas. Think about God. I had recently, I mean at the age of 25, I decided that I liked theology, and that theology was interesting. And I had appointed myself a decent theologian. <laughs> it's entirely wrong, but I thought myself a competent theologian who didn't really read any books, at least not at the time. Barely read my Bible. I prayed a lot, though. There's another thing I did on the train. Pray. So, if, you know, with 40 hours, I mean, if I, you know, go through this list again, a time to give birth and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to uproot what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal. With 40 hours to think, when I read this, I think, yeah. I mean, in 40 hours, there were times when I was laughing to myself. There were times when I was weeping to myself. There were times when I was angry that my life had not turned out more the way that I wanted it to. I was throwing stones. But I was thinking about these train trips that I used to take while I was on this recent train trip down to Miami. I stared at my phone for eight hours. If you stare at your phone for eight hours, you have only felt one way. <laughs> I realized this. I got sucked into this the zone of entertainment. And the feeling of being entertained, like I know there's happy movies and there's sad movies and there's movies that make you reconsider your whole life. Not a lot of movies out there like that. The feeling of being entertained is this kind of static feeling. Like even the word amusement means unthinking, right? To muse over something is to think. Amusement, amusement, a is neg negative. To negate the musing, amusement is that which induces you 
from a state of thinking into a state like oblivion, which is why, you know, so many of these big blockbuster movies are amusing. They just overwhelm your senses, blow your senses away, so there's no room for thought. So what I, I mean, what I realized was after, you know, staring at my phone for eight hours, I realized how s stripped back and laid bare and, and just kind of dull my phone was making my trip. <laughs> the world without the phone, the world that I recalled from my 20s, when I, when I, was, when I was an idiot, <laughs> I still had more room and more time to think in my 20s and did more productive thought in my 20s because I didn't have a phone distracting me from the diversity of my own thought. Now, I mean, the diversity of my own thought, I simply mean reflections on a diverse life. And I think that this is one of those things that technology tends to do. It's that technology, and modern technology in particular, tends to streamline life and to just shave off all of the profound diversity that God has appointed for every life. So, so God has appointed a time for everything. Give birth and die, plant and uproot, kill and heal. But you can resist that. Like the fact that God has appointed it doesn't mean you can't fight God tooth and nail to live as boring a life as possible. Because not everybody responds to the times that God appoints. The appointed time is the time where God calls you to do something. I mean, everybody knows this. Everybody's had that experience where you're at work and you see something unjust happening. And you're like, I should do so. I should say something. This is the time to throw stones. That's it. It's true. When you see something unjust happening to people you work with, well, I mean, when you've all seen it before. Some way, somehow. And you realize it. This is the time. This is the time to uproot this injustice. But you don't, there's nothing that's forcing you to do it. You recognize that the time has come, but you can fight it. You can fight all the things that, all the interesting things that God sets up for everyone to do in the course of their life. It's important in the course of a human life that everybody gets to experience the time to kill and the time to heal and the time to weep and the time to laugh. Because God is revealing himself in all of these things. But you can fight it. You can resist it. And, and maybe this is, this is my realization. It's that when I'm stuck in front of a computer for hours, I don't mean writing. When I'm stuck in front of a screen for hours, 
I feel as though I am resisting the vast cornucopia of times that God wants me to live through, to endure, to suffer from, to enjoy. And the screen is a sort of oblivion that takes us out of this diverse world, this world under heaven, and puts us not above heaven, but under the earth. Because we all know that feeling, like when you get sucked into the phone zone for hours, and you finally put that thing away, and you look back up, and you're like, oh yeah, the world. You realize how much harder the world is than the phone. Me too. Harder to be alone with your thoughts than in a state of distraction. But I want to remember this. I remember these. This is the value of these proverbs. When I get caught up in amusement, I want to remember that God has set up this better life for me. And when I say better life, I don't mean more pleasant. Because it's no fun. The time, no one wants the time to die to come, but it's coming. It's appointed. The same is true of the time to kill and tear down and weep and mourn and throw stones. But God has appointed these times because there's something good in them. Because he makes himself known to us in these times that he set up. That's why he set up the times. He appoints these times so that we can escape life under heaven. Because these times are set up for us under heaven, but they're sent to us from above heaven. And if we enter deeply into these moments, even the dark moments, even the sad moments, then we can escape the ephemerality of the world. The not lastingness of the world. And we can hide in the ark of heaven. deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen 
premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.